I appreciate you so much breaking free of the routines of your life and coming in this morning to worship the Lord and study the Word together. And, and uh, this is what Sundays are for. God told us to keep that Sabbath day holy, and this is what it's for. It's to reconnect with the important people in your life that will build you up and strengthen you. It gives us an opportunity to reconnect with the Spirit of God and let Him restore us and refresh us and renew us as we spend time together thinking about Him and talking about Him and, and the love and the life that He's given us. I tell you, I'm a little overwhelmed. i got to be perfectly honest. I'm, I'm on the verge of tears because I'm overwhelmed by the goodness of God in my life. I'm just saying, just letting you know. And this is a tough message that I'm about to bring to you, to you today. Um, and, and I hope that you hear it through the brokenness of my own heart and, and, the, and the goodness of, of God. I hope you hear it as I present it to you because God's not angry at you. Please hear me. God's not angry at you. Christ suffered the full wrath of God on the Christ on the cross for you. He's paid the full penalty for your sin. And if you will accept the payment that He made for you on that cross, you can walk out of here knowing that God's not mad at you. Still, you know, it's, it's really funny how we as human beings struggle with that thought. We think that somehow God's against us, that somehow God's out to get us, and the reality is, no, He's not. Oh, He's out to get you. But He's out to get you so He can bring you into His family. He's not here to throw you away. He's here to bring you in. Draw you close. And this, this, these words that we've been sharing with you the last several weeks regarding the Ten Commandments, they're not to provoke you and to, into a deeper resentment. They're not to cause a greater fear in your heart uh, regarding God's thoughts toward you. Just the opposite. God is wanting you to know, look, I love you. I have your best interests in, at heart in mind. Uh, and uh, He wants you to know that His grace is available to you. Uh, this, this particular series, going through the Ten Commandments, uh, has had an amazing impact on, on some of you. You've come up and, and shared with me how, the God, how God is working in your life to set you free from some things that you've struggled with for a long, long time. I've had people call me and Facebook me um, because they've listened to the podcast and stuff, and, and uh, they've told me that this series has meant so much to them, and, and uh, that humbles me. Um, but it also lets me know God's still at work. God's still redeeming people. God is still setting people free. And even if you've walked with the Lord for a long, long time, you may come face-to-face as we deal with these issues. You may come face-to-face with the reality that God's not finished working on you yet. There's still work He has to do. And that shouldn't drive you away from God. That should draw you closer to God so that He can complete the work that He started in your heart. Anyway, we're going to talk about murder today. How many of you know there, it doesn't take, you don't have, have to have a knife to stab someone in the back. Anybody ever been stabbed in the back before without a knife? <laughs> All right. Did you know the FBI lists Birmingham among the top 10 most violent cities in America? Did you know that? We're actually number 10. We at least have dropped a little bit. We were number 8 a couple years ago. But 109 people were murdered in Birmingham last year. 71 of those victims knew their killers. 19 of them were killed 
in a domestic dispute. We live in a violent culture. This culture is eaten up with violence. By the time our children are 18 years old, he or she will witness 200,000 acts of violence on TV, including at least 40,000 murders. And that's just watching TV. That doesn't count the innumerable acts of violence and murder our kids see at the movies or experience in the video games they play. The American Academy of, Pediat of Pediatrics warns that children who are continuously exposed to media violence show an increase. Statistics prove if kids are exposed to high levels of violence, they will show an increase in antisocial behavior, in aggressive behavior. Why? Because they become desensitized to violence. And they become desensitized to those who suffer from violence. They learn to view the world as violent and mean, and they become more fearful of, be of being a victim of that violence. They learn to think violence is an acceptable way to settle conflicts. I mean, what better way to settle a conflict than to pull out your 44 Magnum and blow the guy away, right? Can you imagine what the crime rate in Birmingham might be after this generation grows up? We may become a nation of predators. It's kind of scary. Well, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, and we've arrived now at the Sixth Commandment, which simply says in Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Say it with me. You shall not murder. Now, some of us, some of us may actually think we ought to skip this one because we don't think it applies to us. We've never murdered anyone. We, we've never taken the life of another person. I mean, some of us may actually even say, you know what, I've never even had the urge to kill anyone. You're a liar. We'll talk about that one in a couple of weeks. But, <laughs> I mean, you may be thinking to yourself, you know what, this one really doesn't apply to me. I've never even had the urge. Well, what about that last time you were on I-65 during rush hour and someone cut you off? <laughs> what, what about the last time a co-worker got the promotion you thought you deserved? What about, uh, what about the time in Walmart where your kid embarrassed you again? Or, Denise, what about the last time you took some MSP ladies to, to, to Walmart and they embarrassed you again? <laughs> or what about the last time your spouse wrote a check and it bounced and you had told her that morning, don't write another check? Comedian Jack Benny said this, he said, My wife Mary and I have been married for 47 years and not once have we had an argument serious enough to consider divorce. Murder, yes, but never divorce. And that's the way a lot of us live. We're always just on the edge. If you could, if you could, have you guys seen the movie The Purge? Imagine what would happen if we could act on every impulse we feel. How violent and ugly this world could get. I mean, we just had a road rage incident up in Pelham, right? A couple of weeks ago, right? We had a young 18-year-old boy uh, sent to prison for the rest of his life because he was trying to protect his brother from a fight at the slab in Montevallo. And from, by all accounts, what I hear about the young man is he was a very gentle, 
nonviolent kind of person, but he picked up a, what was it? A baseball bat. You shall not murder seems like a pretty straightforward kind of command, but actually it's often misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied. As a matter of fact, you shall not murder may be one of the hardest commandments we have to keep. We're going to talk about this. So what I want to do today is get into the Sixth Commandment, what it really means when God says you shall not murder. How does that apply to our life? What does that mean to us today? And I want you to, if you will, permit the Holy Spirit to really search your heart as we go through this. Really think, God, how does this apply? And how might I be breaking your Sixth Commandment without even realizing it? And how can you work in my heart to help me step further and further away from the ledge, if you know what I mean? All right, let's, let's read these commandments together, okay? Read them with me and say it with me. And God spoke all these words. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you so much for the opportunity to stand in front of this amazing group of people. These brothers and sisters in the Lord. I thank you for this opportunity to share this word. And I pray, God, that you would help me to say only what you would have me say. No more, no less. And help me, God, convey to their hearts today your truth, not my opinion. And help us today, Father, each one of us in this room, to make up our minds that we're going to live our lives the way you want us to. We will not conform to this culture. We will not let this world press us into its image. But Lord, instead, we will fight back and push back against that with the help of the Holy Spirit, and we will permit you to to lead us and guide us and conform us to the image of Christ. We want to represent you well in this world, Lord. Help us to do that. Help us to do that. These commands have been given to us to bless us. These commands have been given to us to help expand our understanding of what it means to love you with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So God, help us, teach us, show us today with the help of your Holy Spirit, the power and the implications and the applications of this word so that we might bring you glory and honor in a day that desperately needs to know who you are. For your praise, Jesus, to your glory. Amen. Exodus 20, verse 13 simply says, you shall not murder. And according to the Zondervan Expository Dictionary, this Hebrew word, that we've translated as murder, describes a range of what we call personal killings. Personal killings. Everything from manslaughter to premeditated murder. Every, uh, personal killings are, are those, those killings motivated by such things as selfishness and jealousy and cruelty and revenge and anger. Why is God so opposed to murder? Why is God so opposed to murder? Let me give you two reasons today. Jot these down, if you will, because they're important. First, God's opposed to murder because only God has the right to give life and to take away life. That's God's right. God's right alone. 
In Genesis 9-5, and this happens after the flood, God speaks to, uh, to, 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 the, to men, and He says, And from each man too I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. You see, to unlawfully or illegitimately take the life of another person robs God of what rightfully belongs to Him. That's His life that He gave. It's His life He can take away. And none of us have the right to abrogate God's rights there. So that's reason number one. Life is His to give and take away. Reason number two why God opposes murder in every form is because human beings are made in the image of God. You've never met an ordinary human being. There is no such thing. Long after this world has passed away, long after kingdoms have come, risen, and fallen, long after this world is consumed by fire and we embrace the new heavens and the new earth, you and I will still be alive somewhere. And if we could see each other for who we really are, and who we can be in Christ Jesus, we would bow down and worship one another. Or if we could see how wicked we are and how ugly we are because we're still dominated by sin, we would run away in fear of each other. But there's no such thing as an ordinary human being. You're not ordinary. The person sitting next to you is not ordinary. They are an eternal soul. We need to get that into our mind into our head. Let me tell you why. I was greatly disturbed this, this week. We were talking about the, the Ten Commandments and the relevance that the Ten Commandments have to our life in my classes at Kingwood Christian School. And we were presented in one of the lectures by an ethical choice. We were presented with an ethical choice. If you came up to this scene, what would you do? If you saw your pet and a stranger drowning, and you could only save one of them, which one would you save? Now before you answer that too quickly, let me say, Biblically speaking, the only reasonable answer is I would save the human being. Why? Because that human being is created in the image of God and has a, a, is invaluable in the eyes of God. And because he's invaluable in the eyes of God, even if I don't know him, even if I've never met him, even if he's the, truthfully the scum of the earth, he's still a human being created in the image of God, I will save that human being. But several of our kids in a Christian school who've grown up in church said, oh man, I'd forget the human being. I'd save my pet. My heart. It was like somebody stuck a dagger in my gut and twisted it. Because that tells us where our culture's going. The same group of people, I'm, I'm getting off track, God help me. The same group of people who will convict you and put you in prison and throw away the key if you mess with the egg of a California condor are the same group of people that say you have the right to terminate that human baby in the, in the womb of its mother. The human baby, to them, is just a mass of tissue that can be destroyed as a matter of convenience. But don't you dare touch the egg of that endangered California condor. Is there not hypocrisy in this? We'll get to that in a little bit. I'm just saying, guys, listen. 
There is nothing more precious in the eyes of God than people like you and me. There is no such thing as an ordinary human being. We are created in the image of God. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Human beings bear the image of God. To murder a human being is an offense against the very person of God. Let me say that again. I want want the power of that statement to sink deep into your heart. To murder a human being is an offense against the very person of God. I mean, imagine someone taking the life of your son or your daughter and you get some idea of how God feels when someone is murdered recklessly or negligently. So that's the second reason why God opposes murder so strongly because we are created in His image. Every one of us. It may be the image might be distorted and it might be corrupted because of the sin in that person's life, but that person is still beautiful and wonderfully made in the eyes of God. Made in His image. So what does this commandment mean to us today? How do we apply this commandment to, to our own situations? And this is going to sound in many ways like a political platform. It's not. I'm simply pointing out to you the truth that's in the Word of God, and I'll sit down and happily debate any of this with anybody at any time because I believe these truths are self-evident in the Word of God. It's going to sound an awful lot like a political diatribe. It's not. I am not running for office. I am simply lying out for you what the Word of God has to say because of the value of human life. First, it matters to us. It matters to us because you shall not murder does not forbid capital punishment. What are you talking about? Do you guys understand that God is after not only a loving society, but a just society too? He not only only is a God who is love, He is a God who is just. Okay, we got to get that into our minds. Sometimes we have run so far into the uh, the loving nature of God's character and personality that we have forgotten He's a very just God too, and He demands justice for wrongdoing. That's why Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for all the sins of mankind. Excuse me, mankind. But as I, I want to point this out to you in the Word of God, that you shall not murder does not forbid capital punishment. This Tuesday, a man is going to die in the electric chair in Alabama, or the I guess injection. Now I'm not sure how they do it, but a man is going to is going to suffer capital punishment because of a crime he committed over 20 years ago. Is that wrong? Should we as Christians say that's wrong? And I'm telling you, no. Capital punishment. Uh, is not forbidden by this command. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God commanded capital punishment for a variety of crimes, including witchcraft, murder, kidnapping, adultery, and rebellious kids. How about that one? (laughs) Makes honoring your father and mother that much more important, doesn't it? I mean, apparently, listen, apparently God feels that some crimes deserve the ultimate punishment. But, and here's the but, God also requires a proper trial to judge a person's guilt before that person is put to death. We can't take it upon ourselves to terminate someone's life that has to go through the proper channels of justice as prescribed according to our laws and the laws of God. Numbers 25.30 says, Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony. Only on the testimony. Not just because he's accused of being a murderer, How many of us jump to judgment because the accusation's made? 
wrong. You can, we murder people's reputations and destroy their lives all the time on the basis of an accusation. That's murder. Don't do that. Wait for all the facts to come out before you jump to a conclusion about why Colin Ka Kaepernick is just saying. Do we really know why Colin Kaepernick is bowing his knee during the anthem or not? Just because we disagree with it and because we find it distasteful, should we throw him under the bus? Let, let's stop jumping to conclusions. Let's stop, let's stop jumping to judgment. I, I, I don't know either way. I'm just saying I see so much being put out there by people who ought to know better. Let's back up. Let's make sure all the facts come in before we start passing judgments because we can destroy people. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, let me get back. It does not forbid capital punishment. Judgments like this are to be based on the testimony of witnesses, not just our instincts or our gut feelings. No one is to be put to, be put to death, it says in Numbers 25. No one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. I don't know why I brought that Colin Kaepernick thing up. You guys are already mad at me now. Here's the deal, guys. God wants to see justice in the world. And God gives governments the right to maintain law and order and dish out punishment to wrongdoers. Romans 13.4 says the authorities are established by God for that very purpose, to punish those who do wrong. We Listen, we as individuals don't have the right to jump to judgments about things we don't know. We wait for the facts to come in. We wait for all the evidence. We wait for the testimonies of the witnesses, and then we can make our judgments. Capital punishment isn't murder. Capital punishment is an act of justice that sometimes is necessary to rectify horrible wrongs and prevent those wrongs from happening again. Sometimes capital punishment is necessary because our world has fallen and we have to somehow put an end to the injustice. Does that make sense? And don't I'm sorry I conflated those two issues. Second, you shall not murder does not prohibit war. I've had to counsel soldiers, and, and it's hard for me to do that because I've never experienced it myself, but I've, ha I've had conversations with people, with, with young men who have gone into combat, and they've done some, in their minds, horrible things. They've taken human life, and they struggle now to believe that God will ever forgive them for what they were part of. And if you are one of those, if you yourself have been in combat or know somebody who has been in combat and had to, had to fight in a war and had to take human life as a result of the duties that you were given, let me remind you here, the Word of God does not prohibit war. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says, There is a time for war and a time for peace. God often commanded His people to fight their enemies, to make war against those who would seek to destroy them. In Psalm 144.1, David sings, Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Listen, there are some things worth fighting for, and there are some things worth dying for, and there are some things even worth killing for. We just need to make sure that we've sought the mind of God. And we know... 
I mean, were we justified when we fought a war to stop Hitler? Were we justified to stop the spread of Nazism? Were we justified to stop the murder of millions of Jews? Is anybody going to vote against that? Wouldn't God want to stop that injustice being perpetrated by that group of people upon another group of people? Absolutely. It's right to go to war to stop the spread of evil. And it's right to go to war to protect innocent people. And it's right to go to war to preserve freedom. Sometimes we face worse things in war. And as awful as war is, you shall not murder doesn't forbid war when it's necessary. And that's a whole argument and debate we can have. St. Augustine came up with this idea, St. Augustine came up with this idea of a just war. And those are, those are arguments that rightfully should be had before launching. We're about, are we going to war with North Korea? I don't know. Should we go to war with North Korea? I don't know, but that's a talk, that's a, that's a dialogue that we need to have before we just start nuking them like some people want to do. You're talking about the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people. That requires us to step back and think this thing through. Is there another way to stop, to prevent any more killing? I don't know, but those are discussions we need to have. And we as Christians ought to take a deep breath before we encourage our president to nuke them. Just carpet bomb the heck out of them. What are you talking about, man? Slow down a little bit. Think this thing through. This commandment really does have application to our lives, does it not? Third, you shall not murder forbid suicide. And I know that there are probably several people in this room who have either thought about it or even attempted to commit suicide. Cindy has shared her testimony many times about the struggle she had. And maybe you'd want to talk to her if you're one of those contemplating suicide, thinking it through. Maybe you've already developed a plan for it. I don't know, but if, you're, if that's going through your mind, I would encourage you to seek someone out and talk about it, and Cindy would make herself available. Cindy, wave your hand. She's been there. She's done that. But praise God, she's still here. And she now is offering hope to others who may be struggling with the same thing. Talk to her, okay? You shall not murder forbids suicide. Suicide in America right now is the 10th leading cause of death. Over 44,000 people took their own life last year. Another 500,000, half a million people were treated for self-inflicted injuries in our emergency rooms. What suicide is, is this. It's essentially self-murder. And what God says is, don't do it. And your response might be, but it's my life and I'll do what I want with it. And God says, I gave you that life and it's not yours to take away. Theologian Thomas Aquinas gave three scriptural reasons why we should not commit suicide as Christians. Reason number one, you might want to jot these down. It's unnatural. It's unnatural to want to take your life. Don't do it. Number two, he said, it's a crime against those you know. Think about it. I've had to, do, to perform the funerals of several people who committed suicide. And in every case, it leaves everyone who loves that person asking themselves the question, why? Why? In every case, it leaves the people 
the family and friends of the person who committed suicide, asking themselves the question, what could I have done? Is there anything I could have said? So reason number two why we should not take our own life is because it's a crime against those you know. Some of you may have experienced that for yourself because maybe a family member has taken their life or a close friend has taken their life, and maybe today you're struggling with those same questions. Why? What could I have done? Don't do that to somebody else. Please don't do that to somebody else. There's enough pain already in the world. Third, a third scriptural reason why we shouldn't take our own life is because it usurps the place of God who alone gives and takes life. It usurps the rightful place of God to give and take life. Job 14.5 says, God has decided the length of our lives. You know, God, how many months we'll live and we're not given a minute longer. You see, suicide short-circuits the plan God has for that life. It prevents God from fulfilling His purposes in that person's life. If the devil had had his way and Cindy had been successful in her suicide attempt, how many of you know that you wouldn't be receiving the help you needed today to keep living? Don't let the devil have his way in your life. The thief has come to kill and to steal but He has come to give you life and life to the full. You hear what I'm saying? We're living in a culture that's beginning to celebrate suicide. Not in this community. Not in the community of faith because we have trust in a much higher power. We may be discouraged, but He is our encouragement. And we may be struggling today with discord and and, 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 and strife, but we know that He is our peace. And He is going to take us to greener pastures, to a place of rest. All right. Let me just say this as, as I come to the conclusion of this third point here. If you've considered or are considering suicide, let me say this and let me say it as clearly as I can. You matter to God. Your life matters. Your life matters to us. You think it doesn't, but I'm telling you it does. You matter to God and you matter to us. And as bad as things appear to be, there is hope today in Christ Jesus. As painful as life seems to be to you today, I want you to know that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He cares for you. And He can bring you out of the despair that you're feeling right now. He can heal the pain that you're going through right now. Psalm 147.3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and He binds up their wounds and we are here to help you experience that healing power for yourself. Don't give in to the fear and the pressure. Let God redeem and restore your life because He wants to do that. And He is powerful and loving enough, He can. And we're here to help. Okay? Good? Good? The fourth thing, the fourth application of this commandment to our lives today, you shall not murder bans euthanasia. Some people call it mercy killing. Some people call it physician-assisted suicide. I told you this sounded like a political platform. It's not. This is what the Word of God tells us. And these things ought to be important to us. People who support euthanasia believe society has the right to kill a person because of deformity or an incurable sickness or old age. 
And they would authorize doctors to decide if and when a person's life should be terminated. It's not simply, listen, it's not simply deciding when to pull a patient off life support or allowing people to die from natural causes. We've had to do that before. We've had to be part of that decision-making process where we had a loved one who had come to the end of their life and they were only being sustained by the machinery. And we've had to tell the doctors, yes, it's okay to put a do not resuscitate on them. It's okay. It's okay to pull the plug. Because they were already, in every effect, dead. Their brains were no longer functioning. Only the machines were keeping their hearts pumping. How many of you have had to make a decision like that? Man, that's tough. I mean, you weep over a decision like that. And that's okay. Those decisions are appropriate when necessary. Nothing wrong with having made that decision. But what we're talking about here is just because a person has some kind of deformity, just because a person happens to be going through a deep struggle with despair, we do not have the right to terminate their life. Give you a couple of examples. Right now, Iceland. Iceland is celebrating the fact that they have no Down syndrome babies in their culture, in their society. None. No Down syndrome babies. You know why? They terminate them. Now, I don't know about you. I have a special affection in my heart for Down syndrome children. Boy, they are the most loving kids on the planet. And they add so much. I know there are hardships that come with it. I know the family has to struggle with some financial issues and stuff like that. But I don't know. I've never met, I'll be honest, I've never met a family of a Down syndrome child that regretted letting that child live. And they'll tell you that's the greatest gift to our family ever. But yet euthanasia would say, well, if the child comes out deformed in some way, hey, you don't have to deal with that anymore. Just let them starve to death there on the birthing table. This is where we're headed. I shared just a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night, the most influential philosopher in America today, Pete Singer. He is a bioethics professor at Princeton University. Writes book after books and literally is the most influential philosopher in America today is openly advocating the death of children. Not, not fetus. I'm not talking fetuses. I'm talking children that are born, but because of their deformity or some kind of defect, they're going to prove to be too difficult for their parents to raise. He says it would be merciful to the family and to the culture to let that child die, to terminate the life of that. This is where we're headed. Because we have removed ourselves from these commandments. We have set ourselves free. We have cut the rope that connects us to the, to, to, to the Word of God. And as a culture, we're beginning to drift into deeper and more dangerous waters. Making decisions we were never, ever authorized to make about the sanctity of human life. Am I telling the truth? Philosophy major back there? Telling the truth, right? This is where we're headed. Y'all, we better take some stands. We better stand for the truth. Or we'll find ourselves drifting 
I mean, right in Holland, I, I got story after story, and I, I don't, I don't mean to, you know. In Holland last year, a man who struggled with alcoholism. This may come home. A man who struggled with alcoholism was tired of fighting alcoholism, and he said, just go ahead and end my life. I'd rather die than continue in this life as an alcoholic. It went to court. The court gave him permission, gave the doctors permission to take his life simply because he was tired of struggling with alcoholism. How many of you have been to that point? How many of you were feeling so desperate you would have gone to an attorney if it had been an option for you? You see what I'm saying? You see where we're headed? This commandment forbids euthanasia. It forbids things like this. About 70 years ago, Hitler thought he should have the right to decide who would live and who would die. And six million Jews died before the world could stop him. I mean, we cannot afford to place this kind of power in the hands of any man or group of men. It's a foolish, it's a foolish thing and it's a wrong thing. Only God has the right to determine when a life should end. Amen? Fifth, the fifth reason why this commandment still applies to us today and how, how it applies to us today is this. You shall not murder forbids abortion. And I know there are people in this room who probably have aborted a baby. I understand that. And, and I'm not here to heap condemnation on you. I'm here instead to point you to the healing power of Christ Jesus. But this commandment forbids abortion. Psalm 139, 13 says, For you created my inmost being. You, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my, say it with me, mother's womb. Verses 15 and 16 go on to say, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my, say it with me, unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Bible makes it clear that from the moment a child is conceived in a mother's womb, God considers him or her a human being and precious in his sight. From the moment a child is conceived, God has a plan and a purpose for that child's life. This is no mere blob of tissue. This is human. This is human life, and it's precious in the eyes of God. This is a person who has been created in the image of God. This is a person whom God loves. This is a person for whom Christ has died. That is a person unique and valuable in the eyes of God. And we have allowed this culture to take the language away and we've allowed them to redefine that precious human child as a piece of tissue. You know what? I am not... This is how it's defined for us. This is the way the culture works. I was a journalism major in college. Working on a master's in journalism way back in the day. And I have watched the terms and the definitions change as this debate has begun, has, has, you know, has, has gone on. It used to be we were pro-life and they were pro-choice. Pro, pro, 
That's reasonable. I'm pro-life. You're pro-choice. You know what it is now, of course. We're anti-choice or anti-abortion. Nobody wants to be anti, right? You don't want to be against something, right? But that's the way they've defined us now. We're anti. You know what? I'm not anti-abortion. And I think your choice needs to be made before you have sex. I'm pro-life. I am pro-life. And I will, that's a hill I'll die on. Every human life is created in the image of God. He says it's precious. Well, I say it's precious too. I'm pro-life. And I will do everything in my power to save that life, to rescue that life. I'm not anti your right to choose. I'm all about choice. I just think you should have made your choice earlier. And now you're calling your baby to pay for your sin? Come on, man. What's up with that? Take responsibility for the child that you're bringing into this world. And if you don't want to take responsibility for it, give it to me. Or give it to the other 2 million people in this country waiting to adopt a baby. Do you know that there are more people waiting to adopt a child than there are mothers aborting their children right now? Hear, did you hear that? There is a home that waits every child that is conceived and brought into this world by God. There are homes waiting to embrace those children. Two million of them, only about a million and a half abortions a year. Work out the math. You get the math, right? Two million want babies, a million and a half don't. Well, just bring the, bring the baby into the world. There's somebody that wants that baby. There is no such, there is no such thing as an unwanted child. Since abortion was made legal in 1973, over 59 million babies have been killed. I want to put that into some kind of context here. I'm not trying to slam anybody. I want you to think about this. This is where we're headed as a culture. 59 million babies have been killed since 1973. That's 90 times, over 90 times the total number of American soldiers who have died in every war that America has fought. 90 times. 98% of these babies, 58 million, have died because the mother felt she couldn't afford the baby or because the baby was inconvenient. Most babies are killed not out of medical necessity, but as a form of birth control. And I'm telling you, there is no such thing as an unwanted baby. There's a home waiting on that child. Now look, that's a really sensitive issue. And I realize that there are women and, and men in this, in, this, in this church today who made the choice to abort a baby. And I know that you didn't do that flippantly. I know that you carefully thought it through. And I know that you agonized over that decision. And I, I know that you did what you thought was best at the time. And, and I, I don't, I don't want to put any more condemnation on you. I don't want you to, to make you feel any more guilty. I don't want to bring you into shame. I do want you to know this. God loves you. <laughs> and I do too. And the good news is here today that God extends to you His offer of grace and forgiveness. You don't have to live with the guilt of it anymore. You don't have to live with the shame of it anymore. Christ died on the cross to set you free from all of that. 
It doesn't matter what you've done or how awful you've been. God still loves you and He wants to make everything right. Everything right. He wants to remove all the shame and all the guilt of that decision that I know you struggle with and He wants to replace that shame and guilt with peace and joy. If you'll turn to God, if you will turn to God, He will heal you. He will heal you. I guess I've talked to too many I'm really spending more time on this than I wanted, but it's, it's, I, have, I have talked to too many ladies who made that difficult choice, who years afterward, sometimes 10 and 15 years afterward, are asking themselves questions like this. If I had given birth to that baby, what would he be like today? What would he look like? Would he look like me? What would he be interested in? I've talked to too many ladies who made that choice long ago and they're still living with the consequences of that choice. Struggling with their self-worth. Struggling with their self-image. Struggling with the idea of God forgiving them for taking the life of that child prematurely. And I want you to know today, I, I'm, I'm being as honest as I can, I've not had to face that choice that you had to face when it came to bringing that baby into the world. So I, I can't pretend to understand all that was going through your mind and all the pressure you were feeling. But I am here to say that if you are struggling still with the feelings, with the brokenness that, comes, that often comes with making that choice, I want you to know today that God loves you. And He wants to help you move beyond that he wants you to face that and work through all that so that you can get to a place of healing and freedom for yourself. Does that make sense? I, I meet too many people that are struggling with the pain and that pain is causing them to do even worse damage to themselves because they simply won't let God work in their life to, to remove the roots of that shame and guilt that they still struggle with. You don't have to live, you don't have to live that way anymore. That's what I'm trying to say. You don't have to live that way anymore. For whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, He's a new creation. All things have passed away. and Behold, all things become new. Look, man, that's the promise of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, he's, he, He'll do it. He'll do it. He'll do it. No matter what you think about yourself right now, God looks at you and He sees you as precious and you as valuable. He died for you on that cross. All right, let's move on. To this point, we focused on you shall not murder only as it relates to physical life, the physical taking of life. And some of us are breathing a real heavy sigh of relief because we think, whew, didn't have anything to do with me to this point. Well, get ready. You got your steel... Toed shoes on, Sean. You ready, man? New boots. Those look good, man. Just saying, you're styling today. <laughs> well, I'm going to see how hard I can jump on them, okay? No, no I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're, we're, uh, I know that most of us have never literally killed anybody. And we've never taken a gun. We've never shot anybody 
else. We've never taken a knife and we've never literally plunged it into anybody's back. But as I said before, there are more ways than one to stab somebody in the back. There are other ways to kill a person without ever spilling a drop of blood. There are other ways of murder that may be bloodless, but they're not painless. Jesus talks about the Sixth Commandment in Matthew 5, 21 and 24. <laughs> Man, we could spend a lot of time here, and I, you better hope we don't. But anyway, <laughs> so, if you think you shall not murder does not apply to you, then I want you to listen to what Jesus has to say. You got your steel-toed shoes on, right? Ready to go? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. <laughs> Leave it to Jesus to dive even deeper. Not just about behavior, it's about attitudes of the heart. But I tell you, Jesus said, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What? Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, let's get honest. How many of you kind of lost your cool this week and said something to somebody? Even when it was coming out of your mouth, you, oh, I wish I'd stop. Well, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus, as only Jesus can, He expands the meaning of you shall not murder. You see, murder isn't just talk, uh, taking the physical life of another person. We can murder someone just as easily, just as effectively in other ways. We can take a, we can take a life without ever spilling a drop of blood. How? I want you to listen to verses 21 and 20, uh, 22 again. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. We can take a life when we act toward people with uncontrolled anger. Now, we all get angry. But we're told to be, to be angry and sin not. You can be angry. Anger is an emotion. And when you see or experience injustice, you should feel angry. It's a righteous emotion. But we're never given permission to act unrighteously in response to that emotion. So when we, when Je what Jesus is saying here is, we should never deal with someone out of uncontrolled, in unrestrained anger, or we are as guilty of murder as if we'd stabbed him in the heart with a knife. Every parent in the room went, oh, I'm, so... <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> I... As a teacher in a classroom. Mm. You see, you shall not murder forbids acting out of anger. Acting unrighteously out of anger. And it's interesting to me that Jesus specifically says, Angry with his brother. Angry with his brother. Angry with his sister. Isn't it true our anger tends to flare up most against the people we know the best and love the most? Absolutely. If you live, you ladies at MSP live in a tight, such tight quarters, I mean, for the most part, you love each other. <laughs> I see heads going, some going like this and going on. 
it's really hard to get angry and stay angry at people we don't know because we never see them again, right? It's hard to hold a grudge against somebody you never ever see again. But let a friend or a family member do something we don't like and suddenly we blow our top. And how often is it that we take all the other anger that we've experienced that day and we just kind of, it's like a Niagara Falls, a little trickle here, a little trickle here, and all of a sudden when we begin expressing anger to this person that we're living with, it's like, it becomes a Niagara Falls. Our homes, listen, this this is crazy, but our homes become a killing field, don't they? Some of us grew up in a killing field kind of home. And we're still struggling with the consequences of that. We were screamed at our entire life. We were called names every waking moment of our life. We never could do anything right. And everything that was said to us, was it, it, it was wounding. It was bruising. It was abuse. And now we find ourselves, because that was our experience, we find ourselves just kind of passing it on, don't we, often? Our homes become killing fields. So we let the people around us we, that we love the most, we let them have it the most. Never once do we think about the death and devastation that we leave behind. 1 John 3.15 says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You don't have to stab him in the heart. You don't have to punch him in the face. All you got to do is look at him and hate him. And you're a murderer in the eyes of God. Anger and hatred are at the root of all murder. And murder could be wiped out if we would allow God to help us bring this anger under control. And that's what He wants to do. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. <laughs> but can I tell you, some, sometimes we tend to take draw our identity from the anger that we've been feeling. And we allow that anger to define our lives rather than, the, than walking according to the Spirit, letting the Spirit produce in us a new kind of fruit. Not the fruit of sin, the fruit of righteousness and bitterness, but the fruit of love, joy, and peace. And I'm asking you, I'm telling you, some of you today need to let go of your anger. I don't know where it comes from. You may not even know where it comes from, but if you find yourselves exploding and unloading on the people that you love and care for the most, then maybe you need to let the Holy Spirit take a deeper look in your heart and say, wait a minute. Get to the roots of this thing. Let God root this out. Let Him remove this root of anger and bitterness that's really ruining your life. Come on, let's get honest. You're destroying every relationship God's given you because you can't keep your mouth shut and you can't control the anger in your heart. You haven't punched anybody yet, but you would if you could. Enough. Enough. Let the Lord do a work in your life. You shall not murder bans uncontrolled anger. You can't act on it. It also bans abusive speech. Verse 22 again says this, Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court in the day. But anyone, Jesus says, who says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Listen, man, this, this culture that we're in, one thing we learned to do early, and that's, that's to call people names. I mean, we're good at it. We are a name-calling culture. And we will throw people under the bus. We'll call them all kinds of names. Raka is an Aramaic insult that means something like you idiot or you moron or you stupid fool. 
People back in the day would say Raka when they were angry and wanted to insult a person. It, it attacked a person's self-worth and dignity. The same is true of you fool. It's an assault on the person's character and reputation. It undermines their value as a human being created in the image of God. Now let's just stop real quick, and I want some feedback from you, okay? Because I know you're about to go to sleep on me. I'm trying to wake you up. What are some of the names we like to throw around today that impugn a person's reputation and character? Come on. What? What? Who said something? Somebody said something over here. Okay, no. What? What'd you say? What'd you say, Denise? Say it. I don't care. Say it. Say it. Okay, idiot. How many of you called idiot growing up? What a pleasant term. Made you feel good, didn't it? Made you feel like an idiot, didn't it? After a while. Anybody else? Come on. Come on. You've read your Facebook posts. You know, I know. Come on. Hypocrite. What? Oh, whore. Thank you. I, say it again. Anybody else? Come on, come on. We, as Christians, we're really good at throwing them out, too. Come on, let's be honest. What? Peon. Holier than thou. Hypocrite. You guys are being really too pleasant. They're being really nice. Butthole, thank you. I'm just saying, we, we've gotten really creative in our name calling. We've gotten really crude in our name calling. And what's bothering, I'll be honest, the, the genesis of this series uh, really wanted the Lord rate it, uh, just put it on my heart so heavily several months ago before we ever started it was because I was watching believers who claim to love Jesus and serve Jesus, I was watching them just devolve, if you will. Acting and speaking just like everybody else. Man, these commandments are given to us so that we won't be like everybody else. But I see us, because of the climate that we're in, we're just, we're just taking on all their awful sinful tendencies. We are calling each other names because we disagree on minor pieces of doctrine. You know? We're, 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 we're pronouncing judgment over people because they have a different political opinion than we do. We are destroying their reputations because we don't like what they stand for. But it's just really a matter of preference, not a matter of the word. And I'm watching, it's like we as, I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about, we have like, we, we just kind of devolved until we're just like everybody else. And I'm saying, no, 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 this word is given to make us different. We are to live weird in the eyes of the world. It doesn't make us better than anybody else, but what it does mean is, we are set apart for the glory of God. We are set apart and called holy so that we might represent the Lord. So we will guard our mouths. We will guard our hearts. We will put a governor off on our attitudes and our behavior because it's not about me, it's about Him. And I don't want anybody to think less of Him because they think less of me. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. Some of us have experienced the power of that tongue because it was speaking death to us 
all the time. Our moms, our dads, our friends, our teachers, they constantly told us how worthless we were, how we would never amount to anything, how useless we were. And I'm telling you, not here in the house of God. Here in the family of God, we don't speak to cut people down. We speak to build people up. That's who we are. And we will determine to use our tongue to breathe life into people. Listen, verbal abuse kills just as surely as a knife plunged into a beating heart. Name-calling, insults, threats, false accusations, constant negative criticism, trivializing and undermining another person's worth, they cannot, they, that cannot be. It cannot be. These are acts of murder to the human soul and to the human spirit enough. I had a, a slogan in my youth group back in Ozark because they were horrible. We had an insult jar. Every time we went on a trip, we had a jar, and when I, when I heard somebody or someone else heard someone use an insult, call someone a name, they had to put a quarter in the jar. I would have kids get on the van before we went on the trip and just put 5 and $10 in there saying, hey, I'm paying up front. But I had a slogan in that youth group, build up or shut up. Build up or shut up. I'd like to institute that here. Is that okay? Build up or shut up. Let's use our words to bring life into, into, into the lives of people. Let's not do any more damage. Let's not do any more damage. All right. John, if you would come, we're going <laughs> to... What a weird way to transition into communion, John. <laughs> He's going to save me. <laughs> Look, guys, listen to me. L listen to me, really. I, I want you to focus on me for just one minute as John comes and, and prepares to lead us into communion. You do know that Christ came to give us life and life to the full, right? I don't want to be working at cross odds with the Lord. We, I, you and I, we can't do anything about the murder rate in Birmingham. There's not one thing I can do to change the murder rate in Birmingham. But I can do something about the rate of murder in my own home, and you can too. Hear me? You shall not murder deals with more than plunging a dagger into somebody's heart. You shall not murder also has to do with the way we treat people with the way we treat people. Do you see the people around you as people of incredible and infinite worth? Do you see them as people that should be built up in the Lord? Do you see yourself as an instrument of God's grace and mercy? Do you see yourself as a life-giving instrument in the hands of God? You should, because that's who you're called to be. Is your home, listen guys, is your home a life-giving home? Or is it a life-taking home? Is your home a place where people act out of anger? Where they take their anger out on each other? Is your, is your home a place of name-calling and insults and negative criticism? Is it a place where people speak abusively and get away with it? Even speak hatefully to one another? Well, if it is, then let King Jesus come home to, ru to rule. Let Him take control of your home. Let Him take control of your tongue. Let Him take control of your, of your heart and your life. We can't do anything about the violence in Birmingham. But we can certainly end the violence going on in our own homes, in our own relationships. With God's help, our homes don't have to be killing fields anymore. And that's what this command is. telling us to do with the help of God by His grace walk in the Spirit 
And let the Spirit of God change your heart. Let go of those old patterns of behavior. Let go of those old speech patterns. Let God help you deal with the unforgiveness and the bitterness in your own heart, the guilt and the shame in your own life. Let God help you work through that so that He can use you as an instrument of grace and life to the world around you. He loves you. He loves you so much He has no intention of letting you remain the way you are. Trust Him. Trust Him and grow in Him.